0: Hey, everybody, it's me, Josh, and I'm here to tell you it's official. We're going to be in Vancouver, B.C., and Portland, Oregon this March. On March 29th, we'll be at the Chan Center in Vancouver, and on March 30th, we'll be at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland. So come see us. Tickets go on sale this Friday. Go to sysklive.com for ticket links and info and everything you need. We'll see you guys in March.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, Production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hallelujah, and welcome to Stuff You Should Know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm Josh, there's Chuck, there's Josh T over there, mm-hmm. and
1: uh, this is, like I said, Stuff You Should Know. Hey, you know, we should plug uh, Josh's record. Can you get that anywhere, Josh? Migrant Worker? All right. <laughs> He's got a new album out. He's a very talented musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the name of the album? Self-titled. I don't think they wrote out self-titled. Oh, okay. I, I think it's just say. called Migrant Worker. Okay. Uh, and it looks great. I haven't heard it yet, but the artwork is is amazing. And mm-hmm. I know Josh is talented, so yeah, go out there and find it, everyone. Jerry's not in a band.
0: No, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, she's not.
1: <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna weigh their individual talents against one another. But Jerry's not in a band. <laughs> what if Jerry was like secretly in a heart tribute band or something? That would be that would make my life. Yeah, well, it'd that be would pretty be amazing. Great.
0: Well, I want to hear that album too, Josh. Okay, okay, says Josh. Um, so Chuck, uh, I said hallelujah to start this one off. You did, and uh, the reason I did that because it was a nod to Pentecostalism, which is what we're going to talk about today.
1: That's right. I could have sworn we did an episode on speaking in tongues. We did not.
0: We did one on faith healing.
1: And snake handling.
0: Yes, both of those were excellent.
1: And we must have talked about speaking in tongues some during both of those. Yes. But we're going to talk about it a little bit more because it's a big part of the Pentecostal movement, which... Huge. Surprisingly, and you may have been the one that dropped that stat on me recently about being the fastest growing sect of... Christianity is that right?
0: Yeah, I did. It was the other the other day. I don't yeah. know where. Or I was like, in that can't context. be true. And you yeah. said,
1: well, maybe it was just. Uh, I can't remember what you said. Evangelical.
0: Yeah, I think I. Uh, that doesn't sound like me. I probably no? said, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm right.
1: Oh goodness, that uh, sounds like me. That was a great Josh impression. But it, it is true. It is, um, and I, I guess it just seemed counterintuitive because I naively thought that Pentecostalism was sort of antiquated in something that was going away. Oh, no, that's how they get you. That's what they want you to think, and then, <laughs> bam, they spring on you. They throw a snake in your face. Yep. They say, here, hold this, sinner. <laughs> no, but we're going to be respectful here because it's pretty interesting, I think. Starting now. Now. Okay. Uh, we need to get in the Wayback Machine, though, and go back uh, to where this all began. Mm-hmm. Um, not really where it all began, because in truth, that would be biblical times. But where it began as a modern thing is uh, not that long ago, 1906, in downtown Los Angeles, uh, they had something going on called the Azusa Street Revival.
0: Which we talked about that in the faith healing episode, too.
1: Yeah, it was a very big deal. This was at the uh, Apostolic Faith Mission in downtown L.A. there, right on Azusa Street. Uh Um, Downtown, I looked... L.A. looked very different back then, obviously.
0: Yeah, this is like the industrial area I saw.
1: Yeah, I mean, now it's just downtown L.A. Sure. It's near like the the toy, uh, not the toy zone. What do you call it? The toy zone? (laughs) Yeah, not the zone. What do you call it? An area where, district, toy district. There's a toy district? There is. I didn't know that. Yeah, downtown L.A. has got a toy district and a fashion district. It's where, like, you go get raw fabrics off the truck or cheap toys straight off the boat, that kind of thing.
0: Gotcha, okay.
1: It's not like just a Wonderland or anything. I know, I was like, (laughs) I want
0: to go see this. This sounds
1: amazing. I want to go to the toy zone. Yeah,
0: the toy zone.
1: (laughs) So, um, this was going on uh, back then, down there. Yeah. uh, And it was led by a minister, an African-American minister from Louisiana named William Seymour.
0: Yeah, and what was interesting about this um, is that this is 1906, and at the Azusa Street Mission, um... This was a like, a like black and white. Uh, I'm not sure about Hispanic, but I would not be at all surprised. It was if Hispanic were, as well. Okay. There were like um, races worshiping together. Yeah. Um, and it was a very big deal. Just that alone was a very big deal. But what makes this the start of Pentecostalism is that um, at some point, I think in April of 1906, they started holding um, three services a day, seven days a week. And these were like marathon hours long services, each one. And the reason that they were doing this is because for, if you're a Pentecostal, um, you believe that the Holy Spirit um, had descended upon the Azusa Street Mission and was in baptizing all these people with fire and causing them to um, speak in tongues, to dance, to clap, to sing, and basically revived religion. Uh, as as or Christianity as we know it, like that's what happened here in Los Angeles, starting in April of 1906.
1: That's right, and they get that that goes back to the biblical days, where uh, the eleven remaining disciples uh, after Christ was crucified, because you know Judas was the twelfth. You know what happened to him? Yeah, he didn't pan out so well. He didn't pan out so well. Um, Didn't he kill himself after that? Yeah, he hung himself. Or oh, okay. hanged himself. Excuse me. <laughs> I always get that wrong. I always get that wrong, too. Uh, but those 11 remaining disciples uh, were baptized in the Holy Spirit and filled uh, with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues during the Pentecost feast, uh, which was a Jewish feast. Named so because it was, I think, 50 days after uh the crucifixion after Passover. Yeah. After Passover and the, and 50th is Greek Pentecost is Greek for 50th. <laughs> right. Well, well put Chuck. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. So th- what happened at that first Pentecost feast back in the first century CE was um, they were, like you said, they, they were bathed in the, the Holy spirit. They mm-hmm. were speaking in tongues. They suddenly had powers to like heal. And all this happened at that Pentecost feast. Um, and in apparently in the Bible, it basically says, um, hang around and wait for this to happen again, and you will know this will be a sign that the second coming of Christ is at hand. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if you're a Pentecostal, you believe that in April of 1906, the Holy Spirit showed up on earth again and basically bathed these followers in, it, in itself, in the Holy Spirit, um, and to announce
1: that Christ was coming again for the second time. That's right. And this, um, if you are a a complete agnostic or atheist non-believer, this all sounds very weird probably. Mm -hmm. But even back then and now, if you are um, a non-Pentecostal Christian, uh, let's say, you might think it's pretty weird too. Um, It got a lot of blowback back in 1906 from... Uh, Christians and atheists alike. Mm -hmm. Uh, The L.A. Times, I was a reporter who wrote a story entitled Weird Babble of Tongues, uh, where they wrote about uh, attendees breathing strange utterances and mouthing a creed which it would seem no sane mortal could understand. Uh Devotees of the weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites, preach the wildest theories, and work themselves into a state of mad excitement. Right, Man.
0: So um, it wasn't just the Los Angeles Times that thought this was a little odd. There was a guy named Charles Parham who five years earlier is considered possibly the actual founder of Pentecostalism because this is really important. Speaking in tongues is the, the basis. It's the thing that differentiates Pentecostalism from everything else. The idea that you can speak in tongues. And when you do speak in tongues, it's because you are being baptized by the Holy Spirit and your, your soul is being sanctified. And that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not actually saved yet. That's that's the big differentiator. Well, back in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, Charles Parham was preaching and one of his church members, uh, Agnes uh, o- Ozan, I think her mm-hmm. name was, started speaking in tongues. And so some people are like no this was the first appearance of this holy spirit that was announcing the second coming of Christ. Other people are like yeah yeah Agnes is great and we'll we'll give her her due but really it was the Azusa Street revival where it wasn't just one person it was everybody who came this this revival this um this thing where people were dancing and clapping and speaking in tongues for essentially the first time ever uh-huh. or at least since the the apostles back in the 1st century um This went on for years. They held three services a day, seven days a week for years. And people were coming and being ecstatic and having just a heck of a time, I almost said a hell of a time, uh, (laughs) at this mission. Um, I think it was like nine years total. Yeah, and then spreading out and going out into the world to basically say, hey, everybody, Jesus is coming. Look busy. (laughs) Do you remember that? That was like Stephen King's favorite t-shirt for a teenager to be wearing.
1: Jesus is coming look busy? Yeah. If I'm you read
0: his stuff wearing. from the 70s, like in every book, there's a, t- a teenager wearing oh, really? a t-shirt. Yeah.
1: That's like uh, George Costanza's uh, when he stumbled upon the thing that if he looked annoyed, mm-hmm. every time someone passed his office, then they thought he was working hard. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Serenity now,
1: so sanity later. Uh, one thing we should point out, too, that uh, the early Pentecostals uh, were... Oddly ahead of the curve in uh, allowing women to take leadership roles in the church Mm -hmm. uh, at at a times and many times women of color. And this was not the norm in 1906 in any capacity. Um, So we should give them their due for that. Well, in fact, William
0: Seymour, the guy who was heading the Azusa Street um, revival, um, he married a white woman. And he believed that the, the races um, worshiping together was a, a sh- clear sign that, you know, God was present, the Holy Spirit was present, and that this was like the real deal, like this was really happening. But what's ironic and kind of, I guess, tragic even about it is that there was a a faction that split off at the mission um, and a group left the mission and founded basically their own branch of Pentecostalism there's like one really clear through line as that aside from the um, the r- like religious beliefs of evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, um, and that is the politics of it, right? Yeah. So, tr- so there'll be some leader who comes along and says, "No, this in- this literal interpretation is being interpreted incorrectly. We, you, it's actually you're supposed to say this word." And now all of a sudden, this guy's got his own his own church with his own followers, and they spread their own word, right? right. Um, this happened at the Azusa Street Mission, and out of that came the two largest congregations um, that are in the United States, at least the Church of God in Christ which is predominantly African-American, and the um, Assemblies of God, which is predominantly white. And so what started out is this really amazing, like um, racially mixed, multiracial ecstatic worship of God split into two different factions of the same thing that, that divided along racial lines.
1: Amazing. Yeah. So let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit about what's happened since then and uh, what Pentecostals believe and why they're growing so quickly. All right. So before the break, you mentioned the Church of God in Christ, uh, largely African-American, 6.5 million members. Not too shabby. Uh, Assemblies of God, 3.2 million members.
0: Also not too
1: shabby. Give me a lot of stats in here as we go um, to really drive home what what's, uh, has happened here. What has happened? <laughs> it sounds like something awful. Uh, it's not how I mean it. In nineteen eighty, six 6% of all global Christians were Pentecostals. Uh, by 2015, that had grown to 25% from 1980 to 2015. That's astounding. Yeah, it's like a 19% jump. And, But also, Chuck, that
0: means that one in four, yeah. one in four Christians are Pentecostals now.
1: Yeah, and I think the stat from that Washington Post article says one in 12 human beings on planet Earth are Pentecostal. Yeah. Of just all humans. Yes, that's right.
0: And if you're a Pentecostal, you're like, well, that's clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is spreading throughout the world. That's right.
1: Um, this uh, is not just the United States. In fact, it is, uh, it is such a big deal because it's a global movement. Mm-hmm. Um, what is referred to as the Global South, um, which is... Africa um, or regions of Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia. Yeah. The global South is booming with even with, uh, I'm sorry, Pentecostals. That's right. Um, and I mean, we'll talk a little more about that, but
0: just kind of put a pin in that that, that it is, I was right that it is the fastest growing <laughs> religion or religious sect.
1: Yeah. So there's this guy, he's a New Testament professor at uh, Evangel University of Missouri named Martin Mittelstadt. And he's quoted a lot in this. Uh, who wrote this? Was this Dave Ruse? I don't know. I, I didn't guess. see. It Might have been Dave, but a, it seems like a Dave uh, Ruse jam. The author got an interview with with Mister um, Middlestadt. I don't <laughs> know if he's a doctor or not. Okay, but uh, he he had a lot of uh, great light to shine on this and kind of what's going on. With he was this a light bringer. Mo- <laughs> he is a light bringer. <laughs> um, he said, I'm that, "Sorry,
0: Doctor Middlestadt."
1: Oh, you just called him doctor, and he might not be. But I also just call them Lucifer, too. Well, good point. (laughs) Dr. Lucifer. (laughs) So he said that this is uh, kind of like any kind of restoration or renewal movement within Christianity. That happens when, and it's happened over time in different ways, but that Mm -hmm. happens when Christians feel like, hey, we've been ignoring something pretty important here in the Bible uh, directly from, from Christ's words, and we need to recover that in a big way. And in this case, they're talking about the Book of Acts, which details what we went over earlier of what happened with the disciples after the Passover,
0: right? And they' so like this, this idea is that it's literally being recovered. Like there is, this is literally happening. The Holy Spirit, as prophesied, is returning to Earth and 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 hearkening the uh, the second coming of Christ, right? Yeah. So, so like, these re- renewal and reform movements have happened before, and in fact, some people trace Pentecostalism to one in the late 19th century called the Holiness Movement. Yeah, I saw that. And these these renewals um, that follow in the tradition of the Holiness Movement, they are based on, um, like, a charismatic belief that's— it's really easier to explain what it's not. And that is that stayed kind of call and response service where everybody sits down, stands up all at the same time, and is, it's very structured. Charismatic worship is the exact opposite of that. It's not structured. It almost seems like things are coming apart at the seams. Um, people are dancing and clapping. Everybody's almost doing their own thing. And it's like a, a there's a lot of room for you to have your own experience directly with the Holy Spirit, not necessarily just through this preacher or this priest or whoever is acting as the conduit, like in a normal service. This is like the Holy Spirit's there in the room and everybody's interacting with it in their own way.
1: Yeah, which um, sounds kind of fun, to be honest. I I grew (laughs) up in a Baptist church that was the opposite. It was one of these very sort of dry things. Every Sunday you would get your sermon that had to wrap up by noon because the pot roast was in the slow cooker and the Falcons were going to come on in an hour (laughs) right? and you could feel people getting antsy, you know, it was just one of those deals. That's the church I went to. I remember we had a guy that came and visited one week that sat on the front row and started, uh, started talking back. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Started. And just with like, you know, you know, all, all glory, hallelujah. So they would just, it's like what is going on? Everyone did. Everyone was like, "What is this guy doing?" Yeah, um, we don't do that here. It was they didn't say that, but that was the the feeling I think. And like, that man turned this, out to be man. Saint Paul. <laughs> I just remember being a kid and hearing him and seeing the reaction of people and getting the feeling that they're all like. Don't screw this up for us, buddy.
0: <laughs> we, uh, yeah, right. We got we're to gonna be Are out of doing here in things. Yeah. yeah,
1: we can get out of here in 45 minutes. Just clam up.
0: <laughs> um, I went to a funeral recently at a Pentecostal church. Oh, really? And it was something else, but there there were people speaking in tongues and Whoa. a lot of, like, shouting back and, and like, like you were saying, like that guy in the front row. And you were but right it, there? Oh, I was in the thick of it, yeah. And um, it was, uh, like... It wasn't just that one guy. It was everybody there was doing that. And they were doing it, like, at their own, like, on their own terms, on their own speed. And um, it was really, uh, it was something to see. It was was really impressive.
1: I would pay cash money to see a hidden camera video of you during that experience. I I was
0: playing it super cool.
1: I bet. Every once in a while, did you go, right on, man.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I said, free bird i'm not into this but you guys seem cool no i was i was there and being explicitly not
1: judgy oh of course
0: you know like i was like i was a guest there and i felt kind of honored to have been invited that's because you gotta I think do it, man. everybody knew who knew me that was there knew that i'm not into that at all but i also didn't want to put out any kind of vibe like i was being
1: judgy or anything no, like why that would you even go if you're just going to sit there and smirk you know that's no fun
0: well yeah exactly But also, I was very, um, I had a lot of respect and admiration for the deceased.
1: I thought you were going to say, I was also very drunk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I had taken some shrooms a couple hours before, and it really made everything even more interesting. Well, that's cool. I'm glad
1: you had that experience. Uh, Yeah, me too, actually. Me too. I think people should experience all kinds of things in their life like this that make them possibly uncomfortable.
0: Exactly, and and like I I could also see I was like yeah you know like if you're really kind of open to this or even on the fence about it you can feel how somebody would get yeah, man. swept up into right. it and be like yep yeah, this is what I believe you it's know infectious yeah totally is. I mean the word charismatic is an excellent word for um the, for that that type of worship like it's perfect but it's not and we tend to think of it as like Pentecostals who just do that and it's not there is actually different charismatic movements that revived other Christian sects, too. Like Catholicism had one back in 1967. Uh The Methodists had a charismatic revival. And um, it's typically kind of looked upon favorably by church leaders because they're like, all right, this is a little weird. We might start having to go an hour and a half with our services. But ultimately, what it represents is people coming along and saying— this religious sect is not dying. We're going to breathe new life into it. Or, if you believe in this kind of stuff, the Holy Spirit has chosen to breathe new life into this sect to keep it from dying off. Or, it's uh, good for business. That's another way to look at it, for sure. And you know, we'll we'll talk about some people who are who view the whole thing kind of transactionally, too.
1: Uh, so, we should point out, too, here about the different kinds of baptism. When we're talking about someone being, quote-unquote, saved— or baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit baptism. It is, if you've seen uh, people get dunked in the pool or in a river, if you're in a more rural church, that is a water baptism. That is merely a symbolic public gesture to kind of celebrate and tell everyone, hey, I had the spirit baptism. I'm saved now. So, uh, hey, get a load of me. Yeah, get a load of me. Watch. I'll I'll get dunked.
0: Yeah, but if you're a Pentecostal, you're basically like that's that's great. That's a nice first quarter step. Right. That and it's not just Pentecostals who believe that. Like I think, you know, if you're Catholic, when you're baptized, you're baptized. It's just done. You have a water baptism and you are officially baptized. Your 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 baby soul's not going to go to purgatory any longer. You can finally go to heaven, right? With, like, Baptists, I believe the water baptism is enough, too. But what differentiates evangelicals from other other religious sects that believe that by bap- baptism through water, you're saved right then. Um, evangelicals are like, no, you've just said that, okay, I'm dedicating myself to God and to Christ specifically. But what differentiates evangelicals is that there's still some other thing coming, and that's that baptism by the Holy Spirit.
1: Well, it was the different in my church. It was you—you you wait till you have that spiritual baptism, and then afterward you have the public water baptism. Oh, is that right? Okay, okay.
0: Yeah. So I've got that backwards. But but that's what. So so even so, then I guess would Baptists be considered a type of Evangelicals? I don't know. I I don't know either. But here's what I found that differentiates Evangelicals or that defines Evangelicals. You ready? Yes. There's a scholar from Baylor, he's an historian, but he's also an evangelical scholar named David Bebbington, David W. Bebbington. Okay. And he defines evangelicals as subscribing to four big points. One is that the Bible is the literal word of God. Right. Where, like, if you're reading that, God wrote that. Do not question it, do not try to interpret it any other way, like, it is literally, it, it, on its face, what it means, is the word of God. The right. second, second point is that Jesus, Jesus suffered on the cross and died in order to cover humanity. Right. And that you can be saved by accepting that as fact, that Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's right. Man, I feel like we're having a revival here ourselves. We're getting a little worked up. This, <laughs> the third one is that you have to be born again by a baptism by the Holy Spirit. So I don't know if you could technically get away with not doing the water baptism because the, the evangelicals say it's that baptism by Holy Spirit where you're overcoming, you're clapping and singing and speaking in tongues and all that. Well, not speaking in tongues, but you're clapping and singing and you have like been bathed and baptized by the Holy Spirit, that that's how you're actually saved. Okay. okay. Point four is that you have to be an activist, um, an evangelist. Who is actively working on converting the world to godliness uh, and Christianity to prepare for the second coming of Christ? It's not enough to just be like, "Oh, they're doing it wrong." You have to go over and explain to them how they're doing it wrong and how to do it right.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was that was. I think all four of those fall under what I grew up with in my church. Okay, then what
0: then what separates evangelicals from Pentecostals is that. Pentecostals believe that baptism by the Holy Spirit involves specifically speaking in tongues. And that if you don't speak in tongues when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you haven't actually been sanctified and made pure uh, so that you can get into heaven and you're a true, you know, Christian, I guess.
1: Right. All right.
0: That clears up a lot. Thank you. You can subscribe to my newsletter. (laughs)
1: Um. So let's talk about speaking in tongues. There are a couple of ways that this can happen. Um, it's also called spontaneous speech. Um, it could come through as a foreign language that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call that xenoglossia. Or, There's
0: basically no documented case of that
1: ever. You, right. Okay. So when I say this can happen, these are the ways that it's broken down in theory. Okay. Um, or nonsensical utterances, which is called glossolalia. hmm And that's when, you know, if you've ever seen – well, if you've ever seen people speak in tongues or if you've ever seen the movie Cape Fear with Robert De Niro at (laughs) the end when he's going into the water, um, (laughs) that's that's what he's doing. It sounds – It's a nonsensical divine utterance is what it's defined as.
0: Yeah, supposedly God's the only one who can understand what you're saying, but you're actually speaking in a language that God understands.
1: Right, and the other thing is somewhere in the Bible it says that uh, if you're going to speak in tongues, you should only do it in public. Like if you're in church, you should only do that if there's someone there to interpret that message. And Pentecostals say nuts to that. They do because they, uh, well, (laughs) I'm good. The cynical person would say they don't have anyone there that could interpret that mm-hmm. accurately. Right. Um, the believer would just say that's uh, they just say that's bunk. So
0: back at Azusa Street Mission during the revival of 1906 or starting 1906, they um, they said they reported. So there was a newspaper um, called the Apostolic Faith newspaper mm-hmm. that was published out of Azusa Street. And um, they said that during the revival, people were speaking in Greek, Italian, Chinese, Japanese, Zulu, Chippewa. Wow! Uh, Yeah. Um, And there's again, there's no documented evidence that anyone has ever um, been given the gift of uh, xenoglossia, which is where you are just fluently speaking another language that that you you don't know. know. That you you have acquired the ability to speak another language without studying it in any way, shape, or form.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No one's ever um, documented that. But that was one of the early interpretations of what was going on at Azusa Street, that the the um, Holy Spirit had come down, given these people the gift of xenoglossia, and now they're, they were to spread out and become missionaries around the world right. to, so that they could go spread the faith in these other native tongues. Um, And a lot of people did do that. I don't know that they were able to immediately go and speak in these other native tongues, but they probably picked it up pretty quickly because immersion's the best way to do it. But people did spread out from Azusa Street and become um, Pentecostal missionaries and founded Pentecostal churches. Like, that really is, like, kind of, like, the the origin point for the entire faith.
1: Well, and wouldn't you say that it's clearly, like, that... Pentecostal um, missionaries have done a great job considering it, the fact that it's growing in the global South. Sure, yeah. Like, I mean How else would they have heard about this stuff, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think the proof is in the numbers that, that there's a, a lot of people who are out there spreading the
1: word and that there's a lot of people who are feeling pretty receptive to that. Should we talk a little bit about some more numbers? Yeah. Um, the Pulitzer Center... Pulitzer Center's Atlas of Pentecostalism. I love that book. Estimates that 30, 35,000 people convert to Pentecostalism every day. Every day. Um, we were talking about the global south. The Redeemed Christian Church of God in Nigeria mm-hmm. claims to have 5 million members in Nigeria alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an article that I read called Think Christianity is Dying? No. Christianity is shifting dramatically from Wes Granberg-Michelson from 2015 in the Washington Post. So should we talk about more numbers or should we take a break and talk about more numbers?
0: Oh, let's take a break and then we'll talk more numbers.
1: Okay. Okay. All right, Chuck, lay, lay some numbers on us, man. Uh, let me see here. In 1980, more Christians were found in the Global South than the North for the first time mm-hmm. in a thousand years. Uh, in the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone, account for one billion people. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty significant. How much?
0: How many in or how? I don't. I don't know how to say this. How much or how many inroads? How much inroads? Neither one's. How makes many inroads? Any sense. It sounds like I'm speaking in <laughs> tongues.
1: You sort of ask it so the how the
0: inroads that Pentecostals have made over time, because um, there's like I think half a billion evangelicals, and a, a, like two thirds of those are Pentecostals, right, around the world. There's like 1.2 billion Catholics, and forever the Catholics have just been virtually untouchable at least as far as christianity goes um but the the evangelicals are really kind of starting to nip at their heels and the other thing that's that's um remarkable about it is just how fast this is happening like like you're saying it seems like 1980 onward was like a watershed change yeah. and shift in the growth of of pentecostalism and evangelicalism around the world but it is kind of concentrated in that that global south and there's a, a like a lot of people are trying to figure out exactly why. Um, one of the reasons why is because in the global South, you know, parts of Africa, Latin America, parts of Southeast Asia, um, there, there are traditional religions still that are charismatic in structure, Mm -hmm. right? To where you're interacting with spirits and, you know, they have an influence on your daily life. And um, when you engage in worship that may include dancing and singing and individual expressions of being touched by, you know, these these spirits or the spirit. And it bears a really striking resemblance to Pentecostalism. So much so that if you kind of trace Pentecostalism back— you you can't help but wonder, like did the exported religions from Africa to say like the Caribbean um help shape Pentecostalism and that Pentecostalism is kind of like a like a reformed version of reformed Christian version of this kind of um worship that's now being re-exported back to the global south and that that is what this part of the the explanation for this um really eager reception is among people in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia.
1: So the idea is that it wasn't that f- big of a mental leap?
0: At the very least it's not like it it's probably harder to to um introduce Pentecostalism to Catholics in Cleveland right. <laughs> than it is to um you know People who follow Mashimo in Guatemala. Yeah, yeah, I got just Because the type of worship bears a lot more of a resemblance to to one another than it does to, say, like Catholics in Cleveland and the way that they're used to worshiping. That makes sense. So that they're already kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I get this. Like, I can identify with this. It makes sense to me.
1: Well, the other thing, too, that um, I think in this WAPO article, it gives a lot of food for thought that uh, Granberg Michelson tackles is uh, immigration and migration – um 214 million people and this was th- 4 years ago uh have moved from their country to another country as migrants and refugees mm-hmm. right um that's a lot of people and about half of those 105 million of those people are christians right which is a way higher percentage than the you know the comparable percentage of christians in the world yeah so christians are moving around the world in big numbers uh everywhere from the middle east uh, in Africa, the Mediterranean. And uh, he makes a really good point that, like the the same people in this country who are uh, advocating against immigration in the United States, a lot of them are uh, would consider themselves Christian peoples. Sure. And so he's like, there's a disconnect between like these people coming up from Guatemala, Mexico a lot of which are christian mm-hmm. saying well, we don't want you here even though that would help them further a christian and religious agenda right exactly it, and it's yeah. a weird disconnect there
0: it is because you're saying like well you know we are all pentecostals here but you're also from a different country further right. south than us so like that's the dividing line the other thing that he he points out is that migration typically tends to strengthen religious faith and increase it yeah. so that the people who show up are typically super religious. And like it's not just, just the with, process
1: of migration.
0: Right, right. can make a you, struggle, yeah. Exactly. And to, to make it makes you be like, wow, there must be a God or else I wouldn't have made it here. Right. You know? So that the people who show up on your doorstep as migrants are typically extremely religious. And he points out that, like, both sides of the political equation should be happy about that. Um, that, like, these... These spiritual renewals and, and religious movements, you know, they can be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they can have—they can call for very strict um, behavioral codes. Yeah. Women's reproductive rights can fall by the wayside or just be suppressed outright. Um, but on the other hand, they can also be good for society's morals. Like, they those same strict behavioral codes also keep people in line and keep them from doing crime. Right. Um, and that that it can it can be good and bad. like with the um the it's called the Second Great Awakening in the middle of the nineteenth century in America, it was a huge religious movement. And it's credited with um helping start the movement to abolish slavery in the United States, yeah. and to uh, to uh, introduce the idea of women's suffrage. On the other hand, it also introduced the temperance movement, which just was one of the worst things we've ever done. But there, there are like good and bad pluses and minuses to general, you know, major religious movements and reawakenings. Um, and I think what this guy's saying is there's a, a lot of pluses and positives that can come with migrants, even though they're being portrayed in the exact opposite light, that they're, you know, rapists and murderers and criminals. Actually, the people who are showing up as migrants are probably more religious than the average American is. Right. Especially in America, because religiousness in America is showing to be declining. Right. So, again, you would think that people who were religious would want their numbers to swell, even if it is through, you know, these migrants that they don't feel very highly about.
1: It's a very interesting juxtaposition. Yes. Very, Chuck. Very, Josh. So that's Pentecostals.
0: You got anything else? I got nothing else. Man, they are interesting. I was reading about them. They will break off into a new church at the drop of a hat over like a couple of words, man. And it's happened very frequently. It's really interesting stuff to read their history. Because it's also so modern and recent, too. You know, you can, it's, you know, a little over a century old. So you can kind of recognize a lot of it and identify with it. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, that's it for Pentecostals. And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail.
1: Uh, This is a very, very sweet email. Is this the one? Janitors. Yeah. So if you remember, we talked about, uh, with great fondness, about our high school janitors. Mm Mm-hmm. In the transdermal implant podcast of course as you do <laughs> not sure how we got on that tangent i don't know either uh but this is from uh emily she says uh, josh talked about how his janitor was a grizzled older woman chuck mentioned that his was a tall lanky gentleman but despite the differences you both remembered them with such affection and respect it gave me the warm fuzzies hearing you talk so fondly of these people for the simple fact that my grandma was a high school janitor. Nice. She is one of the sweetest, classiest people I've ever known, but uh, one of the hardest workers as well. She worked at the high school in her little town of Gettysburg, South Dakota, with my grandpa, who was a science, art, and health teacher, uh, for at least 25 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mom was born and raised in this town and talks about whenever she was having a bad day or didn't feel like going to class, she would just find out where her mom was cleaning and go hang out with her for a bit. That That is so cute. Like me when... uh, as my father, the principal, I would do the yeah. same thing. Yeah, I think that's very sweet. You need to get out of here. Go back to class.
0: Here, take some dum-dums and get out of here.
1: Uh, as for how my grandma enjoyed her work as a janitor, she says she didn't mind most of the cleaning except whenever someone threw up. I can imagine. You, you, could, you could go your whole
0: life without ever getting used to that.
1: Uh, and Emily closes with this. I just want to remind everyone out there that your janitor is someone's grandma or mom or dad or uncle or whatever mm-hmm. they are special to someone so please treat them uh, and their job with respect uh, love the show guys keep up the good work and thanks for always being kind and respectful of everyone and that is uh, from emily i hope we were kind and respectful to uh, christians today i'm pretty sure we were i think we did an okay job yep
0: thanks a lot for that one emily she also sent a picture of um, a photo from the newspaper of her grandma and grandpa together at school. And they are a cute,
1: cute couple. Yep, I love it.
0: Well, uh, if you want to tell us something adorable, we love that kind of stuff, you can get in touch with us by sending us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to Stuff Podcast at iHeartRadio.com.